Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV, your source for all things Americana and Roots music. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content, or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. In this episode, you'll hear from legendary musician Chris Hillman as he talks with Diddy TV's Mark Edgar Stewart over Zoom. Hillman was the bassist and one of the original members of The Birds, a band that advanced the development of country rock and Americana like none other. He was also a founding member of the West Coast version of the Flying Burrito Brothers, which he started in 1968 in Los Angeles with Graham Parsons. Chris is considered a true visionary, and we're so excited to have him on the show today. So, without further ado, here's Chris Hillman and Mark Edgar Stewart. So what, I guess my first question is, so you, you, you've written thousands of songs and you've played on tons of sessions. Uh, uh, how was writing a book different? Was it kind of the same creative process? Did it come natural or was it just a, a completely different thing? I think it, Mark, it came nat- natural. It's funny enough. I think it was easier to sit down and just start writing than to do a song. And I don't know why mm-hmm. that is, but um, I didn't have any problem. I just kept writing. And the uh, uh, thing was, we actually, I had it done, started it seven years ago and it was sitting around, the manuscript was sitting around. And my dear Connie, why, my wife, uh, she I said, we need to get an agent to get us this thing published, either that or just mm-hmm. give it to the kids to read. And that's when I ran into Scott Bomar at BMG, and he had heard I was writing a memoir, and he said, can I read some of it? And I sent him a couple chapters. He said, let's talk. And then uh, we made a deal, and uh, he was great. I said, I'm not, giving you, I'm not giving you Rolling Stones meet Led Zeppelin in the parking lot book. I'm not going to do that. And he said, we don't. That's not the book we want, really. And I, I thought it was very, very, very well done, too. Well, so just I, didn't want to, I wasn't going to write about other people I worked with or denigrate them in any way. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was very tasteful, <laughs> you know, and yeah, the fantastic book. But, but uh, Ab, yeah, so uh, I guess my introduction to you, I've, I've been a fan for, for, for pretty much my entire musical life. Uh, my introduction to you was was in the '80s with, with the Desert Rose Band. I'm I'm, I'm kind of backwards from a lot of people, you know. So so I grew up in Southern Arkansas. <laughs> I grew up in Southern Arkansas, and 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 MTV was banned in our small town, you know. So we got CMT instead, and I was about. 13 years old and I remember seeing the Desert Rose Band and, and automatically just thinking this is really awesome yeah I think I, I like the California flair I kind of identified to it and then of course I went backwards and got into the birds and the burritos and 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 Manassas and all that but uh, uh I guess a question I had is uh, uh it seems like in those early early bands uh there was a whole lot of strong personalities, some 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 strong frontmen, you know, and you're just sort of kind of kind of slightly out of the spotlight. Uh, the birds, of course, I was a shy guy in the back playing yeah. bass. The, I, I would sing sometimes on the shows. I'd sing a song or something. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't a very good singer yet, and uh, you know, I I got promoted when Gene Clark decided to go off and seek other things to do um we lost a valuable part of the birds but yeah yeah i got up at the front line and i had good teachers man i had crosby and mcguinn and gene when he yeah. was in the band. i had good vocal teachers and certainly mm-hmm. watching gene clark write four or five songs a week three of them would be great you know yeah uh, so prolific and i had all these wonderful guys i would learn from you know so that was great um uh i was the peacekeeper i kept the maniacs 
at peace. Yeah. <laughs> but I finally got, and I learned and I got the confidence is what I lacked. And then I got the confidence and learned how to sing and do all that. By the time you yeah, heard yeah. Desert Rose Band, I was sort of at the, at the helm of the ship at that point. Yeah, that, that, was, that was my question. So, so after being in bands with these, these huge personalities, so here you are in the 80s, you have your own band, you're the band leader. So how, how, did, that, uh, how did that affect you as a band leader? We got on the charts in Desert Rose. The first time we got on the charts, was, uh, we hit the Billboard charts, it got in the 20s with the ashes yeah. of old Johnny and Jackson. And then the next one they put out got to number three, top mm -hmm. 10. I couldn't believe it. I kept saying to my wife, I said, this isn't supposed to happen. I'm the guy in the back, you know, and, uh, and uh, I'd written the song and sang it and was leading the band. But I felt like I'd gone through a, a learning process for 30, 40 years. And I I, like I said, or learned from the best. And then by the time Desert Rose came along and I really wasn't looking to do any, another yeah. band. I just wasn't going to do that. But, uh, John Jorgensen, who we all know, incredible musician um, yep, pushed, yep, yep. That, pushed that deal and it worked it really worked well so the success of the desert rose band so that was a, a surprise to you that's what you're saying it was i, I didn't okay. think oh we were i thought the band was good i mean we had yeah, yeah. great players and singers and i guess the songs were working because we were getting on the radio the other fellow like you that heard desert rose the first time was brad paisley in high school okay. and he yeah. wrote he says when i saw desert rose um on CMT, it changed my life, which was very, very kind of him. But he and yeah, Jordan yeah. are very tight guitar dueling guys, you know. I remember those videos. Uh, I remember uh, the, the interview on Crook and Chase. Remember Crook and Chase? Oh, sure. What are, they, what are they doing now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it was, it was kind of funny back in that time. That, 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 and I wasn't even really big in the country music at the time. But for some reason, I just identified with you guys. And, of course, then I went backwards and went into the, to, to your other material. But, uh, uh, but yeah, uh, back to the book. Mm-hmm time between here i love it so uh, uh i love hey I, I love reading about your childhood I, I i have to admit a lot of times i read these biographies you know i kind of thumb fast through the childhood part and i, I want to get to the meat of the bones i absolutely love you know hearing about you know uh horses all your bb gun incidents i could completely relate to that <laughs> oh yeah I could completely relate to that. Uh, uh, another thing was, was your very first guitar that you had bought in Tijuana. It was a, it was a gut string guitar, and, and, and you decided that you wanted to put steel strings on it, and the guitar exploded. I've been there, done that. Turned into my first that. initial of my name, C. It went like that. Yes, I've been there, done that. So, so I, I guess my, my, my question is, what was your first love? What was, it? was it bluegrass, or was it that rock and roll bug? Well, I loved rock and roll. And, of course, I was there in 55, 56 when it was just booming, mm -hmm. literally, you know, and, and uh, Elvis and Ann. Uh, I loved Little Richard and Chuck Berry and Fast Time. I would go save money to buy their singles. Yeah, My yeah. brother had an RCA Victor 45 record player, box. It was a box. Mm -hmm. Stacked the 45s on there. That's all it did. And one little speaker. But when he left home, I got that record player. And I, I, I would collect all those records. I didn't want to play the guitar till I got sort of into folk and bluegrass stuff. Yeah, yeah, first yeah. love musically and as a player was bluegrass. Okay, okay, and 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 I guess soon after you you got your mandolin, and I guess that's where yeah. the, the the bug really began. And oh man, uh, I heard I saw Mike Seeger in the New Lost City Ramblers playing a, a blonde F five mandolin Gibson. Yeah, Gibson. yeah. 
what is that? And then, of course, from the Ramblers, I got into Bluegrass, Flattened Scruggs, Bill Monroe, and the Stanleys. Loved all three of those bands. And uh, nobody around where I was growing up uh, played the mandolin. At least I didn't know anybody. And uh, yeah, yeah, got a lesson. And I got. That's uh, when I first met uh, Clarence White and the Con- excuse me, the Kentucky Colonels in L.A. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was good, you know, and so I, I got somebody to help me with the mandolin. As it says in the book, I went up to Berkeley, California by myself at 16, and mm-hmm. uh, Scott Hambly, this fella, he, he got me going, you know. Okay, yeah. Like, you know, beginning stuff, play scales, use this kind of pick, and he mm-hmm. said, um, and practice. Go yeah. listen to records and play along, make sure you're in tune, all those things, just basics. So you were learning mandolin and bluegrass, was that... Before you discovered the Beatles or, or after? Was that about the same time? You said the Beatles was a huge influence. Yeah, it was before the Beatles. And so in okay. 1993, I was actively, towards the end of 63, uh, middle of 63, excuse me, I was playing with um, the Golden State Boys, later be called the Hillman. That's another mm-hmm. story. But um, with Vern Gosden, Rex Gosden, his brother, and Don Parmalee. And these guys were had about 10 years on me that they came from – the Gossens came from Alabama. Don came from Kentucky. They really had the goods. That's how I learned the music is working with those yeah. guys. They were great guys. They were fair. And they showed me the ropes. And that was it. That was it. But then, of course, around late 1963, I, I hear about this group, the Beatles, but I hadn't heard them. Yeah, yeah. And it was like talk going around. It's an English group, rock group. And uh, then I saw them on Ed Sullivan like a bunch of other people that particular mm-hmm. night in 1964 in February when they were on Ed Sullivan and I went oh my god they just came through the screen and got you they got you it was exciting they looked really cool completely different fashion look and cultural and everything and I just went wow I just didn't think about going beyond and I'm going to be one a guy like the Beatles or I'm gonna, I just didn't think about that went back yeah, to my yeah bluegrass gig I had with this other group that wasn't very good, but it was a job. I was yeah, yeah. <laughs> enough to eat. But then I got yeah. the call to be in the birds and all that. I mean, that sort of came along. And, and the three guys in the birds were Roger McGuinn, Gene Clark, and David Crosby. And they sang really well. I knew they were going to do something, but I just didn't, I wasn't pushing for anything. I just went back to what I was doing. And then I get a phone call. Can you play the bass? I said, well, yeah, I can. And I couldn't, I hadn't even held an electric bass in my hand. I love that part. That that was my favorite yeah. part there. I, I'm a bass player too. And, and, and I'd always admired your bass playing, you know, and, and, and I read in the book oh, and Mark, you're a real bass player. I was sort of faking around. <laughs> you say that he's like, you kind of dismiss yourself as a bass player. I always loved it. And, and Stephen Steele says it was muscular and, and, and it was so on point. <laughs> And and I love hearing that story that 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 you never even held a bass, <laughs> you know, when when you took that phone call. I knew they were going to do something really good. Yeah, and, and I said, "Can you play the bass?" Yeah, I can handle that. And I'm going in there sweating bullets before I walked in the door of the rehearsal. I didn't even know them very well. I knew who they were. Yeah, yeah. And I go on expecting to see this complete setup: amps, drums. And I go in there, and there's one funky old amp at the yeah, yeah. back of the room. McGuinn's plugged into it. I said, okay. And then Mike Clark, the drummer, actually had cardboard boxes. You guys all read this book and love it. Cardboard boxes, one symbol, and that was it. I mean, oh, no, he had a snare drum. He had a snare, boxes, yeah, yeah. cardboard boxes, and, and a symbol. And I plug into McGuinn's amp, the bass in there, and uh, off we go. We, you know, and, uh, McGuinn, 
he really was a good player. I mean, he had a little more experience than the rest of us. And uh, yeah, I yeah. listened to him, how he played the 12 and his rhythm. And I'd sort of go after the bass. I list a lot of Paul McCartney. Yeah. So he you said, play with the pick. Yeah. 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 And uh, I never even thought to go play with my fingers. I should have. I really should have because I didn't really get that down. But um, it worked. You know, I figured it out about after the first album. That was kind of your style, though. You kind of did the pick thing, and you would kind of hit the octave every now and then. And, and uh, anyway, I just thought you had a really neat bass style. And, and, and I know in the book, you kind of discredit yourself as a bass player. I just thought you are a great bass player. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. And uh, like I say, I'm listening to Paul McCartney, who, and you understand this, he, he would play a beautiful counter melody, yeah. right, a times, and a little bit of a lead counter melody line. But he is such a good player. I mean, my gosh, yeah. he's incredible uh, musician at his age you know, my age <laughs> so. yeah McCartney is a fantastic bass player uh, uh, I guess while we're on the subject of bass this question is kind of more for me and maybe not the, 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 the viewing audience I'm being selfish here so I was going to ask you what bass players you do admire but, but I was going to uh, tell you that my all time favorite bass line ever by anybody was was Chris Etheridge on uh, Hot Burrito Number 1 mm-hmm. and he- very good player. I just, yes, I just thought that was the most beautiful bass line. And, and the question I wanted to ask you is, do you actually remember cutting that song? I mean, can, can you remember yeah. the details? And, and do you ever remember a point going, dang, Chris, that's fantastic. I mean, you being another bass player, you had to know that, man. He just oh, no, he was, he was such a good player. And he Chris was really an R&B bass player. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, a lot of people, Chris wrote a lot of that, of those two songs, Hot Burrito 1 and Hot Burrito 2. Chris was half writer if not three quarters of a writer yeah 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 the uh, hot burrito's the uh, descending line right mark you may yes. yeah yep. beautiful yep. absolutely beautiful yeah and graham i must say his two finest vocals on record were on those two songs first album, mm-hmm. burrito first album those are my favorite those are my favorite too and then i love elvis costello changing the title to i'm your toy I didn't know that. I, I read that in a book, you know? So, yeah. And, and folks say, bass can't be beautiful. Well, you listen to that, bass can be beautiful, you know? And it, it was just awesome. But Well, you know, uh, Lee Sklar, beautiful mm-hmm. bass player. Uh, there's a lot of guys. I like Jack Bruce in Cream. I thought he was also a great player where he would do a counter melody. Yeah, yeah. He had had, had really good tone, too. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll tell you who else. Um, uh, Mark. Bruce Palmer in the Springfield. He was a great bass player. Okay. You never could hear right. of him, but he was good. He was solid as a rock. I love those records. So so that would have been him on on, on Mr. Soul, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, so we're in the middle of all this crazy pandemic biz, and, and, and I'm sure you had some really neat things planned for promotion, like maybe like live appearances. I mean, did you have some live gigs planned to coincide with the release of this book? And if so, what were they? I'm just curious. Well, uh, the book was originally going to come out in September. Okay. And uh, we did. We were going to go out and, and play. And I was just—I was taking Herb Peterson and John Jorgensen, basically semi-acoustic mm-hmm. electric, no drums. Uh, actually, and we we were going to use a bass player on a few things. Mark Fain from Nashville, okay. um, stand-up bass. Uh, but of course, we had to move those shows. No one's playing, and then they were moved later, and then they were moved to January of 2021. They're now moved to the spring, so I hope so. But, yeah, we were going to play back east, uh, Boston, New York, all the above, and just go out and sort of promote the book and play play a show, and I would probably read from the book or something, yeah, but. So I'm reading a lot of stuff on you, and you you mentioned in the book, you know, uh, country rock pioneer. That's a word I just kept hearing, that you're a country rock pioneer. 
How does that make you feel? Are you okay with that, or is it kind of weird? Well, I'm okay with it, but, you know, it's so funny because uh, when we had the Tambourine Man and the Birds was a hit, we folk rock, shortly thereafter, psychedelic rock, raga rock. I love that one, raga rock. I don't know where the heck. Raga rock. (laughs) (laughs) And then country rock. And I don't know. I think it was just lazy journalism at the time, but it, it doesn't matter to me anymore. It's fine. You know, it's music. And, and, you know, uh, I think Americana sort of encompassed all of that. Yeah, yeah. The rock, folk, I mean, it's just, it's music. It's just music. Yeah, yeah. But the, I guess they I, have to describe it. You know. That's why I say it, too. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of labels, but people love just putting labels on things. But it makes that it was easy. just something I kept, yeah. Yeah, but it's okay. I've come, I've made peace with that term, country rock. I, I love hearing about, uh, uh, so uh, Sweethearts of the Rodeo had a 50th anniversary a few years ago, right? And in the book, I just loved hearing about, you know, how much you enjoyed that tour. and, and, and yeah, how... I loved it. and uh, I love Marty Stewart and the Superlatives. They're probably the best quartet out there for rock or country. And they're fantastic. And they're wonderful people. Might have been the best, if not the best tour one of the greatest tours I've ever gone on. And working with Roger McGuinn again was good. I had worked with him in 25, 30 years, yeah, yeah. 40 years. And that was like no time had gone by. We just picked it up. And we were right back in, 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 in working and playing together. And, but it was so much fun. And I, I couldn't believe the business we were doing. I just, you know, I always had that uh, with Sweetheart. I said it was a good, it was a pretty good record. It was a noble, uh, noble effort. Um, yeah, yeah. I wasn't pleased with my performance, but I wasn't really a good singer yet. But Graham Parsons brought in two great songs, 100 Years From Now and Hickory Wind, two really good songs to the project. And that was the one Birds album Roger McGuinn and I did not write anything on. That's okay, but we had such great players, uh, John Hartford, Junior Husky, Lloyd Green, Mm -hmm. fantastic field player. And it was great, and, and it, but it just picked up, it picked up legs about five, six years into the, after the release, and and uh, what Sweetheart did, Mark, was it opened the floodgates out in the West Coast for country rock, right? Yeah. yeah. Gritty Dirt Band were there a little bit earlier than we were, but mm-hmm. Poco, the Flying Breeder Brothers after Sweetheart, of course, Parsons and I did the Flying Breeder Brothers, and then uh, Pure Prairie League. All of it led up to the Eagles. And the Eagles, yeah. I look at the Eagles as being real sharp. They looked at everybody else and went, okay. Here's how we're going to do this. And because yeah. initially they started out, it was four piece, very country. And I think Glenn Fry and Don Henley, they're sharp guys. They, they looked at here's how we're going to do this. And, and they did it right. They did it really right. So I, I love Tom Petty's quote. What was it? He said that, that, that you paid for the gas in their jet, air, their jet airplane. And he has given me a lot of credit. Say, or something like that. You know, Chris like, was here before any of you guys. And Every time the Eagles get in their private jet, Chris paid for the gas or something. It was the funniest line. I mean, he was so. I love it. That that, that was that was awesome. So, so so back to uh, 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 Sweetheart of the Rodeo. About just curious. So so Graham comes into the fold. He was kind of the nobody at the time, but 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 and 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 the Birds was an established kind of a big deal. And all of a sudden, he gets two tracks on the record. How did that happen? You know, we we uh, were trying to rebuild the band, and that's where I did run into Graham. I'd heard, again heard about him, but I hadn't heard him play or anything. Yeah, yeah. I met him at this bank in Beverly Hills, believe it or not. And I said, well, we're rehearsing tonight. You want to come down and see what's going on? Comes down. I said, we might be looking for a keyboard player. I said, I can handle that. It sounded like me going into the birds rehearsal. 
Well, he yeah, gets yeah. to the rehearsal that night, and he was okay. He wasn't Floyd Kramer, you know, and he wasn't, he wasn't Earl Ball or any of the, uh, the country piano players. He was okay, but he bet, was really better at playing rhythm guitar, and he, had, he sang yeah. well, and he had these two songs. So we did some shows, and then eventually we started, decided to do the Nashville thing, and, and we decided to cut his songs. He had a great opportunity. We, we yeah. opened the door wide for him, but he had the talent, Mark. He really yeah, did yeah. have the talent. And in from Sweetheart, the end of that, 68, and then we start the Flying Breeder Brothers, and that was a working deal. We wrote some great songs. I'm not patting myself on the back as much as saying that working with Graham back then was very good and uh, proven by everybody. So many people cut our songs, Emmy Lou and, and uh, Dwight Yoakam and all, cut Sin City yeah. and all that. But then I lost it. A year, a year in the Flying Breeder Brothers, year and a half, and then we lost him. He just was off, going off, searching. Yeah, searching I read out. that. And dark stuff. And uh, finally, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to where either he wouldn't show up at a show or he'd come up an hour late or something. I finally said, you're out. I can't work with you. You got to be, you got to really be on this. And I didn't have to go in and say, hey, we just gave you an opportunity in the birds and you're not yeah. using it. He could have. He should have. Yeah, but yeah. You know, Graham had some issues, so. So I read in the book where where you finally kind of had it up to here with him. He had sabotaged a gig, and, and you smashed his guitar backstage. Yeah, I so, regret that. I really do regret it. But rather, I was so angry, and I'd, I'd been yeah yeah through the mill with him five times. I had forgiven him yeah. on stuff from the time we were supposed to go to South Africa, and he bailed on us that morning. We were going to get on the plane to uh, some various oh the Opry thing. Hey, so. <laughs> But he yeah. said another song, and that was at the time. Oh, that was very that was cool that he did that. No, and about a year later, that was disrespectful. I thought, I said, "My God, you don't do that." We were the guests on that show. Yep, I, I'd never heard that yeah. story before. Yeah, I had no idea. We were supposed to do "Sing Me Back Home," and Haggard had a huge hit then, '68. And as Billy, as uh, uh, Tom Paul, Glazer Brothers says, God, you guys, that was great. You're going to do Sing Me Back Home now. And Graham gets on the mic and says, no, we're going to do Hickory Wind. Nobody knew who Hickory, what wow. Hickory Wind was. And wow. Man, he was fuming, smoke coming out of his ears. But uh, it happened. And, you know, hindsight, you go, well, it was stupid of us to do that. But anyway, point being, uh, yeah, I had forgiven Graham so many times. My gosh, I love the guy. Really, I enjoyed it, uh, working with him. And Yeah, yeah. The problem with, which I have shared with other people, he had a trust fund every year, $55,000 would roll in. That probably wasn't what he was really uh, due because they all, that family was robbing each other. Yeah, yeah. All and and uh, it was hard. He didn't struggle like the rest of us. Everybody struggles. They want to be, I'm going to be a musician. I want to be an actor. I'm going to be a writer, an artist. You struggle. It's yeah. part of the game. You struggle. You learn how. You build, you build your character up. And you didn't have to start. It was a detriment that kept yeah, him yeah. from achieving what he thought he needed to do. So yeah, I, I remember reading that, and of course, me, me, me being kind of a vintage guitar nerd, the first thing I thought was, "Wait, did he smash that beautiful Epiphone El Dorado that he played on Altamont?" I was wondering what guitar that you smashed, but I doubt you remember. It was that. a bad Gibson Hummingbird. Okay, like a red one, you know. And but I, I really regret that. I, I'm confessing yeah. to. I regret doing that, but I was so angry. Like yeah, I yeah. started the conversation with forgiving him 70 times 70. And I hit yeah. the guitar and I said, well, I'd just be glad. For, I, I felt like hitting you in the, in the, in the nose. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I, 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 I can definitely understand. I've, I've, I've worked with musicians that are similar, so I, I can understand yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> you're trying to get up and do something together, and one guy's not playing the game right. You know, he's not yeah. playing fair. You go, come on, you're hurting everybody else. It's selfish. You know, yeah. and a few people I worked with over the years, it was a selfish thing when they pull that on you, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I you know, and to end that little story, I have no animosity towards anybody I worked with, living or dead. What's the? Yeah. Hence the book, where I did not go out of my way to denigrate. I didn't write in that book. Graham was high on heroin or this. I didn't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. Write about how talented he was or could have been. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah. Absolutely. There was a place in the book though. Speaking of Conda. Uh, so you, you, you're pretty forthcoming with, 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 with the names, but uh, there, there's a part in the book where you're talking about uh, uh, starting your very first record, and you mentioned a mystery producer, a man in Nashville. Uh, uh, I know who that was. Anybody who knows music knows who that was. I'm not going to say his name, but, but I'm just curious why you chose to leave his name out. Out of respect, but out I don't respect. know if okay. that gentleman is still with us on this planet or not. I don't know. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. But it was just uncomfortable, and I go. I don't think he knows what's. I mean, he should have known what what, what yeah. I was doing it was nothing different from what he had been doing. He was quite well known. Well, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was comfortable. I said, you know, this isn't really working. Yeah. And I, I think we need to do something different. He got mad. How dare you? You know who I am. Yeah, I said, yeah. And I really respect you, but it's not working for me. He storms, storms out, and. I called up Stills. How's the record going? I said, oh, I just couldn't get moving with this guy. I, I thought it was the right guy. He said, okay, let's, how about Ron and Howard Albert? They did the Manassas albums. I said, yeah, perfect. And Stephen got them up to L.A. from Florida. And, then, yeah. and the first record I did with them was, was pretty good. I, it was a new territory for me, Mark. I'd never yeah. done a solo album. Just figuring well, out how to sing at that point. Well, it sounds like it worked out because I love that first record. I thought of this on the way down here, uh, a question, just quick question. So th there's a whole lot of news right now about uh, Bob Dylan selling his song catalog for $300 million. And on one hand, some folks say, hey, he's a sellout. But on the other hand, which I kind of believe, he's just a smart dude wanting to take care of his family. What is your take on that? I got a, uh, when I was working with Tom Petty in January of 2017, Tom was producing my record. And I, we're talking, we had these great talks, you know, every day. And I said, Bob just uh, loves to go on the road, doesn't he? He says, yeah. He says, I asked him about that actually a couple weeks ago. They were neighbors in Malibu. Yeah, yeah. And, he's, and, and Bob says, well, I want to be a billionaire. Straight face, looking right at Tom. He says, I want to be a billionaire. <laughs> I said, really? He says, yeah. I said, I said well, I guess, okay. I mean, you know, Bob's an interesting guy. I don't know him very well, but he's always been nice to me. <laughs> and you figure, okay. And so, yeah, I read about that. <clears throat> I'm not sure the motivation or what, what, what the intention was, but I'm sure, Mark, he probably has, I'm speculating, I'm sure he has some control over those, over those songs, even yeah. though he sells the catalog. You know, I'm not sure what how that went. Do you think that could possibly writing be uh, writing on the wall for the for the future of the music business? Maybe some of these people are kind of. Oh, well, I don't know. I really don't know how that's all going to work out. And I'm talking about mostly people that are in my age group, seventies, mid seventies, late seventies. I don't know. Yeah. I, I right now I'm hoping I can play some more on stage because you know the last show I did I sat in with a group 
uh, here in where I live in Ventura, and it was a yeah, yeah, yeah. outdoor stream uh, show in the fairgrounds. So the last thing I did about four months ago, I, I sing a song and uh, boom, and I'm done. And beep, 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 all the cars. I said, well, I hope that's not my last show. <laughs> down with cars honking at me but i think it's going to be all right for all of us you know i think yeah, it's, yeah. it's too beautiful live music and recorded music done right it's too beautiful it's a soothing comforting thing that is part of our dna it is it is so it's going to be we're going to have music god willing for the rest of our lives hopefully live music you mentioned tom petty i was going to ask you uh, you probably answered this question before. Um, so what was Tom Petty like as a producer? Fantastic. Now, I knew Tom since 1978, but I didn't know him. I didn't know him as well as, as McGuinn. And they toured together and they wrote together. But I got to know him really well when we were working together. And um, I think we started in January 2017. We got that record done about six weeks. He was fantastic. And here's the thing. He loved music, all kinds of music. And if you ever listen to the Heartbreakers on X on his show XM uh, Sirius XM, and you'll hear I, I've heard Heartbreakers songs there where they've taken a Bo Diddley song and cut it, and it's because they liked it. So they and yeah. Jimmy Reed they would cut it and put it out just because they liked the song. Tom had that love of music, and when I was talking to him before we were started recording he said play me a couple of songs i was totally unprepared i'm going oh my yeah. god I'm in awe of this man i start playing he says okay oh folk album huh and i said well i don't know i don't know maybe maybe we'll put drums but he wasn't saying oh i don't want to do that he, he was open to do anything and he i said he said uh, i said i got some other songs i i said i i, I don't know if you'll like them. i'm a little nervous about these don't worry about it i'll let you know I said, I said, I bet you will. But he was honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was one tune at Time Between, this title of this book, and I, I written in 1967, and I was going to record it again. Tom says, Chris, puts a finger on the button in the booth. Chris, why are we doing this one again? You did it fine the first time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you cut it again with Desert Rose. I said, you're right. What am I doing? I'm sorry. So let's move on. Great producer and a wonderful man. Not I've never met a more humble man, and I've used this line before, who occupied that space. He was a huge rock star. I didn't look yes, at him. He was. he was such yeah. a humble guy. And here we are at his house doing overdubs, and he says, he brings the coffee in. He's got four women working for him in his house, so he brings the coffee in. I said, don't you? He said, I'll take care of that. Don't worry about it. He'd come out, and sometimes I'd drive up, and he'd be out there. He said, let me get your guitar for you. It's a great guy. I loved him dearly. October 2017, we're in Nashville, and I hear him about his passing. And man, I was heartbroken, absolutely yeah. heartbroken. I had four more shows lined up, the last one being at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, where Tom and the Heartbreakers are going to come and play with us, with John and Herb and I. And I, I, I was going to cancel those shows. And Roger McGuinn calls me out of nowhere, and he starts talking to me on the phone. He says, don't do that. I said, what do you mean? He said, don't cancel those shows. I knew, I knew Tom, and he wouldn't like it if he canceled those shows. Yeah. Go play in his honor. Yeah. Celebrate yeah. him and his life in, in your shows. And I said, you're right. And I did it. He yeah. said, this is for Tom. We go up there. And I, but uh, end of the story, I mean, he was just a great guy. And uh, the best thing he, he said to me in the, one of the last conversations I had to him, I said, I really appreciate what you've done 
He says, what do you mean? I said, well, doing this album and doing, I, I said, what a great way to, to sort of wind down the recording of my recording career. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, I'm sort of done with it. He says, no, you're not. I'm not done with you. I want to do a rock, I want to do a rock album and a country album, electric. He loved drums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knows to me, I should have put more drums. But um, <clears throat> that was so uh, uh, wonderful to hear that. I mean, I really felt validated, so to speak. I was in awe of him like everybody else. Yeah. But he was like, on the other hand, very humble, good guy. We had some very interesting conversations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that last solo record of yours, and I hope maybe there is another one. So, so fingers crossed that we well, that we get through. All this. I'm not saying no to anything. Yeah. Um, and now, one thing, last thing: if anybody could have put the birds back in the studio, the three survivors, Crosby, McGuinn, Hillman, it would have been Tom Petty. He knew us all real well. He would have been the one we would have all gone. Okay, yeah, probably nobody else, but he yeah. would have been the one that got us back in the studio. I had one more question, last question. Uh, so, so if you could talk to your younger self, so, so, so if you could go back to the days of Brito Manor and talk to your younger self and give him some advice, what would it be? To believe in yourself more and have that confidence and step up to the plate more, which I did. I was responsible as a player. Uh, I wished back then I did. I had a little more confidence to sing out and be a better singer and all that. It came a little later. It, uh, when I started writing songs, uh, McGuinn, uh, I, I read somewhere years ago, Roger had done an interview. He was talking about the birds and all that. And he says, well, Chris was a late bloomer, but when he bloomed, he blossomed. That was <laughs> another kind thing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I must say, uh, that's what I probably would have told myself. Come on, man, you can do this. And if you, if you, and work harder, I, I think I should have, I could have worked a lot harder. Yeah, I, yeah. I strongly stress that. Uh, anything you set out to do, work hard at it. Work hard at it. If you yeah. want to be a player, an actor, whatever, do your very best and work hard. Chris, thank you so much for, 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 uh, uh, for, for the interview and everybody here at Diddy TV. You're awesome. Folks, Thanks, go get the book. Where's the camera at? I'm new at this. Go get the book right here. <laughs> Check out his last record produced by Tom Petty. Yes, that right. This is Double Do It right here. Here we go, man. I can show you how to get your hair like that if you buy that. That is some good hair. I was noticing that, man. You have this shiny, straight hair right here. But but then a few years later, man, you have this cool little fro going. Oh, man. I don't know. It took me. It was a lot to get the hair like that. Well, the other guys had perfect beetle hair. I had to do it, too. So. Anyway, I'm being silly now. Thank you so much, Chris. Adios. Adios. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chris Hillman. Be sure to listen to other Diddy TV podcasts for more from the leaders and legends in the Americana and Roots music scene. And don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.